the Triathlon Show 379. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Jason Boynton. Jason is a sports scientist and cycling coach and he's the co-host of the Cycling Performance Club podcast along with Damien Roos and Cyrus Monk. The topics of today's interview are all related to critical thinking, knowledge, evidence and um, yeah, how to make better decisions, smarter decisions, well-informed decisions within endurance sports. And it is an unusually long episode, as you can see. Uh, but I think that it's good. It was really important to explain all of these concepts in detail and fully and not just brush over any of them. So I hope that we did a, a decent job with that and that you will enjoy this conversation and be able to take a lot from it. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products, as well as with free online tools, education, and a patented sweat test. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for for carbohydrate, sodium, and fluid intake. And you can also book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. As a salty sweater myself, their highly concentrated electrolytes are very important to me in long workouts and in racing. And uh, the gels are super important when I want to be consuming carbohydrates in large quantities. Uh, I can do that easily with the precision fuel gels without any sort of gastrointestinal issues or even palate fatigue. You can get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, and it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation. It also makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can try the Senate for risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back. And you can get a special bundle including the Senate Swim Trainer and a bunch of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senatesoomtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Jason Boynton. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Jason. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Michael. Yeah, doing good. Good, thanks. Uh, can you start by an introduction? Who are you? Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate that. That was kind of a random uh, message to you. So thanks for for inviting me on and uh, and having a talk with you. But um, yeah, so I am Jason Boynton, Dr. Jason Boynton, and uh, I am a sports scientist and exercise physiologist and a cycling coach and um yeah, I'm also the co-host of the Cycling Performance Club podcast, so which is how you kind of know me, I guess. Yeah, and um, I guess if you want to compress all of that, I think my Twitter does a good job of kind of relaying of it's just uh, sports scientist plus physiologist plus cycling coach each equals uh, cyclist engine builder, which is kind of. Um, I think a easier way to express what I do as opposed to just like sports scientists is you just do research or, you know, but, um, yeah, that's kind of who I am. Is that, yeah. so, is that so you're, so you're, you? not, you're, you're not doing academic research at the moment. You're, uh, coaching. Yeah. Primarily coaching right now. And, um, yeah, 
talking with other researchers and that type of stuff through the podcast and that. So, um, yeah, uh, that's, and what, that's what, what I do. Your, <laughs> what was your academic focus, uh, when you did your PhD? Um, when I did my PhD, I looked at the environmental temperature effects, or I looked at how environmental temperature affects high intensity interval training. So, uh, and trained cyclists. And, uh, yeah. that was, uh, two, two big studies. Uh, one was a cross-sectional study and, uh, another one was a training study compared, comparing intervals in two different temperatures. And yeah, that's, uh, sitting on someone's desk at a journal right now, <laughs> waiting to get peer reviewed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and for, for that reason, we won't go too deep into that topic today. We, we can save that for another discussion when, when everything is, uh, published, but one yeah. thing that you you refer you referenced your Twitter and uh, I went and had a look at your Twitter and, uh, oh, no. and it's, a, it's a pretty interesting interesting uh, interesting feed and a lot of the things that you write about I guess come uh, comes back to think topics like critical thinking uh, levels of evidence and and things like that and then you also have a youtube video on that topic basically you call it finding truth in endurance sport and, and i think that was a really good video i watched it in its entirety it was a one hour long video but very um very beneficial to to watch so can you discuss a little bit about that what yeah what what is finding truth in endurance sport for you um well first of all sorry for bringing you on the twitter it's a bit of a dumpster fire and um I'm not, I'm definitely not putting out fires on Twitter. Um, but, uh, getting back to the, the video, um, the, yeah, I came up with this back in 2014. So it's, if you, if you watch it, the, the science is a little bit dated. Um, I've ch obviously changed my, my opinion on some of the stuff that's on there, but I think the overall message is pretty important in the idea around, um, well, what, what I think is kind of a missing component of training and coaching um, is this basic understanding of how, do, what do we know and how do we know it? How do we know, you know, something about training and how do we know that something is true? And these are two, I think, really important fundamental questions to kind of look deeply at, um, especially for coaches out there. Because you should be asking why you are um, prescribing something or recommending something to somebody and what, where you have those core beliefs that would make you make those decisions. Um, and from my understanding, um, I never went through any kind of training like that with when I went through my coaching certifications with USA Cycling. Maybe there's some places that are talking about that now, but it's, um, you, you, you get courses like that in college around like critical thinking courses and things. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really important way to kind of frame, uh, our approach to training and developing athletes and making them perform better. Is that kind of what you grasp from that? Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, I would probably say that it's uh, you said it's very good for or important for coaches prescribing training. But I would say we have a lot of self-coached athletes listening, and and I would say mm -hmm. that it's equally important, especially in this 
uh, day and age where you can consume so much information, including this podcast. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, you have to make some informed decisions about how you want to do your training based on all the things that you hear and know or think you know and, and some critical thinking skills and understanding levels of evidence i think is is important whether you're a coach or or just a, a self-coached athlete yeah yeah and i mean one of the things i think are using that video to kind of you know peak interest in in people when they first started watching it was just saying like look back at some of the things that people seriously did in order to improve their performance like smoking cigarettes before big climbs or drinking wine during the tour de France. Like that's not, um, that's not a joke. You know, we would assume that they really believe that that was going to help them. And why would we think that we're any better? Why would we, I mean, it's, it's easy to have that kind of maybe intellectual arrogance about ourselves because we're so modern or whatever, but we've obviously have things that we're doing now that we know are wrong um, or someone in society or some, someone knows that it's incorrect because they have the data on it. Um, but then there's probably all these things that we are doing wrong nowadays that we don't know about. So how do we, how do we know if something is false and how do we correct this? Because the better we understand reality, I mean, the, the thought experiment being imagine if you could, if you, were omniscient and you knew everything and you could make every single um, decision about your training correctly. You knew exactly how many hours you needed to rest before you could hit the next interval session or, or you knew if it was more beneficial to do the interval session fatigued or fresh. Imagine like if you got your cadence perfect, your nutrition perfect, like imagine if you were basically God of training and you could set somebody up like that. Imagine you, you would hit that athlete would hit their ceiling of, of potential. And, but we're nowhere near that. I can definitely guarantee you that. So, um, so it's just a matter of like, well, how do we get to the point where we are slowly gradually approaching that perfection and that, you know, knowledge uh or the higher levels of knowledge if, if that makes any sense um, yeah yeah i think um uh, you touched on an important point there even though you didn't mention the word but i i started thinking that well humility is really important when it comes to mm -hmm. coaching and training being humble about how much we don't really know and uh and how much of what we maybe think is good practice but we cannot be sure that it's best practice necessarily even though it might be working fine but maybe there's mm -hmm. a better way or yeah we think it's working fine but it's actually something else that is working and what what we think is working fine is actually neutral or or even <laughs> a negative effect so so i think yeah. that that's that's an important uh, attribute to have but yeah yeah if if we kind of dig a bit deeper critical thinking when it comes to training what is that how how would you define it and and how how can people acquire that i guess it's just being as objective as you can about an analyzing and evaluating situations um you know kind of these 
you know, the, the framework and the kind of, um, I guess, terms that, that, you know, we'll be talking about here in a second here, they have a lot of overlap. So it's hard to kind of look at them individually because as soon as you're talking about, you know, critical thinking, the next thing you start talking about is, well, be skeptical about claims. And then you're defining skepticism. And what's skepticism? Well, that's, you know, asking for a higher level of evidence for claims that are made and, you know, suspending your judgment and having a reasonable amount of doubt, right? So those two things will work together. And then two things that I've added since the video, two other concepts is the idea of falsifiability, which is a really, really important idea in science, which is this idea of if it's if there's a claim or you have a hypothesis about something, it has to be able to be proven wrong in some way. And, you know, that's really fine and dandy when you're dividing, when you're um, designing scientific studies, but it's also something to kind of keep in the back of your mind when you are, um, um, uh, when you're doing your coaching practice. So, if, you know, for example, if um, you, I always pick on hit because that was part of my research. You know, I asked myself, well, what, what evidence would I need to see that, that hit doesn't work? High intensity like, interval training, just to, to make sure yeah. everybody's with us. Yeah. 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 So what, what, and so I could, I can conceive of evidence that I would see and in situations that I could see where high intensity interval training isn't necessary or beneficial whether or not that's the case i don't know but i can at least conceive of situations where i would drop high intensity interval training even though i think it's one of the most it, it i do think it is a fundamental component of, of endurance training but even though i feel it is uh or believe it is fundamental i could still conceive of situations where maybe we don't need it if that makes sense so, yes, but how does it relate to falsifiability? Uh, all right. So, yeah. So it, the that that I have this belief that high intensity interval training is a foundation, and I am asking, I am asking myself, is what kind of evidence would I accept that it isn't a foundation? Mm, okay. Does that kind of make sense? Like, yeah. it, there's there's an open door. It's basically an open door to that. that I will accept new evidence. Yeah, that maybe this isn't the case. Yeah, right. And each one of my beliefs. What, what is what is what is it? What is an example of something that would not be falsifiable? Oh, you could have you could look at hit as unfalsifiable if you didn't accept any evidence to the contrary. Oh, okay, so right? it's more about yeah. your personal. Um, your In per that context, yeah. In that context, but you could also things like ghosts, like yeah. ghosts. Most people, the way most people frame the idea of ghosts is unfalsifiable. If you say, well, we, we, you can't measure ghosts because, you know, as soon as you try to measure them, the ghosts will escape that ability to measure it. Well, that's yeah, not falsifiable, right? Because there's no evidence that can make you change your, your idea about it. Another example that just came to mind for me right now is a, a big pet peeve of mine when watching yeah. sports, when watching endurance sports, especially commentators will often say something along the lines of, 
now it's down to who wants it the most. You're in the final kilometer <laughs> on the run in a triathlon. <laughs> that is something that you would, I mean, at least with current methods and what we can measure and test. I don't, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think that that's something that you couldn't prove. Uh, you couldn't, you, it, it wouldn't be unfalsifiable because that's not something that you could possibly prove or disprove. It, would, would that be an example? Yeah, and then but then it comes down to like how much does the claim really matter? Sometimes too, I guess it doesn't. But that's where that's where people can say that, and and I guess normal normal commentary. But but it to me it always makes me cringe when I hear it because I I think that well how can you how can you possibly say that? Um, yeah, because I, I don't think it's about that really. I think that if you if we're, you're looking at watching the Olympics, for example, and you have the two two fastest uh, triathletes or cyclists going head to head in the final part of the um, of uh, of the race, then it could be about it. But but it's probably all, but it could also be about a number of other things. It could be about who's the yes. first, which would, would make yes. sense. And that's another thing about just like appreciating, appreciating in endurance training and how it, it is heavily physiological in its basis. So, you know, that means it's going to be highly multifactorial, your, your outcomes, which, you know, it gets back to like, well, it depends how that happened. Right. Um, but um, I guess in terms of falsifiability, it there when you're designing a study then it's a really important that these studies are, are falsifiable that's important there so it, it's a slightly different context i think that you know when you're di- um, designing a, a good scientific study that the outcome is falsifiable and then um but then i think like you know having that kind of falsifiability that's kind of internalized for lack of better word just being i have i have these beliefs but i have ways right i can conceive of evidence that would make me change my mind yeah right um but just to kind of exhibit uh the importance of falsifiability one of the examples i have is this idea of um the pre-flight checklist right so flying is i mean that's crazy right like you're flying in the sky and like but somehow we have these 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 uh airplanes that just float in the air and and there's thousands of them every day but somehow we have very low crash rates and this comes to you know can come back to this idea of the pre-flight checklist so imagine if you are on a small caribbean island and you come up to two um, pilots standing next to their airplanes and and the you're like well which one of you guys are ready to go and the first pilot says i'm ready to go and the second one says i'll be good i'll be ready to go as soon as i do um a pre-flight checklist and the and you look at the first uh, pilot and you say did you do a pre-flight checklist and he says no look at the plane it look it's ready to go it has two wings i just put fuel in it it's ready to go and then the other guy you know he finishes up his checklist and he's ready to go which one of these two pilots are you going with 
The one that did the, the check, of course. The checklist, right? Yeah. And that checklist is there because the claim is that the airplane is ready to fly. And the checklist is going through and trying to falsify that claim, mm. right? There's no gas. There's not enough gas in here. Is there gas in here? Okay, well, what's the next thing? We're going to try to falsify whether or not this plane is ready to go. So you can see if that p- first pilot is not willing to change his opinion, if that is, is his regular way of determining if his plane is ready to fly just by looking at it and not doing a pre-flight checklist, you can see how that could end in tears at some point. Yeah. Right, because yeah. he's not able to kind of question his reality. Um, so yeah, maybe hopefully that's not too much of a, of a tangent, but like, I think it's, it's important if you, for, for example, if you are doing a training intervention or an approach, um, if if you're a coach and you're, and things aren't going away with an athlete at one point, do you say it's, it's me, not them. And where, where do you start breaking apart your intervention or whatever to figure out if, is this really working uh, the way I think it is? Um, but yeah, and then that comes into another concept that was in the, in the video, which is intellectual honesty, which can be very hard for an athlete or a coach to look at something in a very honest manner if the outcome hurts them or does not benefit them. So you know, if, if I just, if I've set up this whole thing, um, as a, you know, I think we're going to talk about intervals quite a bit today, but if you ask me about intervals and I go on your show and we record my approach to intervals and I'm like, yeah, I have this level of evidence and I'm pretty certain it works. And then it comes out with some other research a few years later that my thinking on it was wrong. Well, if, it benefits me to ignore that evidence in a sense, just to be willfully ignorant of it. But at the end of the day, that's not a good way. Like that doesn't benefit my athletes, right? To, to ignore that part of reality. So um, making sure you're looking at things, um, even if it means, you know, maybe you're going to have to pull apart a big part of your practice or something like that, right? Um, if, if something doesn't work or if there's something that does work that you've just haven't, you've been ignoring um or something like that um but yeah i guess would you, would you uh, say that would you say that this is related to the fact that there's a whole lot of unpublished research when there are when 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 the research doesn't get results you know there are no pos- positive results of the research is, is that does that fall align with this concept of intellectual honesty yeah well, i mean that's yeah, I mean, there could be an overlap with there. I mean, that's kind of what an unfortunate thing that does occur within uh, with journals and that. Um, I think the good scientists out there and the good editors are going to be pro um, pr- pro publishing of uh, non results or negative results or uh, insignificant results um, because you if if those if none of those gets um, published then it's almost i guess it'd be a law of averages it would just be over time like something's going to come through that's going to be positive and then right so i i do think yeah um that could it could be related as well and you know there's this pressure from the journals to um keep their impact factor high and have people cite their research which you're more likely to 
site research that has positive results. So there's this, there's um, kind of a, uh, an, an, um, not a great incentive there in a sense. Yes. But but I think a lot of people, like I said, good scientists are going to recognize that you know, we should be publishing um, results that are non-significant. And yep. like, so um, you, it's you mentioned still something. You, yeah. yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, before when, when talking about uh, skepticism that uh, it's, it's about things like um, asking for a higher level of evidence when it comes to assessing claims. So, so can you talk about levels of evidence and uh, yeah, how, how would you rank different levels of evidence? What should people think about when they are assessing claims? I'm just going to break the fourth wall and say, Michael, your transitions are pretty amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Um, so, yeah, in terms of levels of evidence, there's different uh, different sources will give you slightly different ways to look at it. But you, the primary thing, the take home method is, or the take home message with understanding levels of evidence is that there's higher and lower levels of certainties and, and better ways to, to, to understand things. So, uh, for example, like some research methods books would say something like tenacity is, would be the lowest level of knowing. And that would be, you know, basically simply holding on to beliefs just because they've always been ex- accepted of facts or you believe them out of superstition. Like it's just, you just know them because you've always know them, but your beliefs are inflexible. Um, and the next level up from that would be kind of knowing. Can you, from can you give an example? Yeah. Can you give an example of, of each level? I think that would be helpful. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So like tenacity, like, well, I think probably one of the most annoying ones for an exercise physiologists and probably even coaches nowadays, or hopefully coaches, is people are saying like, oh yeah. Oh, my legs are really burning from all that lactate. Well, we've known for what, 35, 35, 40 years now that that's not the case. And like lactate isn't, isn't what we thought it was 40 years ago. Yet that um, is still that, that ideas around lactate are still very persistent in the culture. So that would be kind of knowing, like I know about lactate because of, you know, because of this thing, these things I've heard my whole life about it, but is it actually yep. true? And and I'll tell you, like I ran face first into that uh, in my first exercise physiology course. Even though I had already come out of an undergrad in physiology, they don't talk about lactate the way say the same way that exercise physiology or exercise physiologists talk about. And I just remember my it was taught by my advisor and he just was like the look on his face was like, Oh my God, who, who did I just bring into the program here? But yeah, like th- things like that happen, happen to people with science backgrounds all the time. I've, I've heard people say things like I've heard geneticists say that, um, that plants don't have mitochondria, things like that, like that are, they definitely have mitochondria. Right. Um, that's a biology thing, I guess, but, um so is that yeah yep. going yeah that's, there. that's a good example yeah yeah uh then the other one would be the next one would be intuition uh, and that's just knowing something based on the gut and um and based off of kind of your feeling so again not really great but 
what's funny about that one, I had a little bit of thinking about that today is once you get to a point when you've been reading and studying something for a really, really long time, you do start to forget where you know things from. And so you're like, I don't know where I know that from, but I think I read it along or I heard it in this class or something like that. So it, it could, those things could potentially be coming gut feelings. Um, but it's still at the same time, I, if I don't, can't recall where I know something from, I'm trying to be cautious and say like, I have this feeling that it's probably like this. Right. So at least when I'm, when I would be talking about it, I'd be kind of tagging it as this is just a gut feeling, but you can see how it would be kind of problematic to like base all of your beliefs based off of gut feelings. Right. Like, yeah. I, but it could be that, I mean, to me, that seems different though. If you have learned a lot about a topic and mm-hmm. you don't necessarily remember where all of your information comes from, that could still be, I, I, I would classify that as knowledge. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily have the capacity to immediately reference it, but that can be different than somebody who has not studied the topic or learned a lot about the topic and they can have a feeling that, well, I should probably do high intensity interval training if if i mm-hmm. i'm all if i if i want to improve my performance that sort of thing so so that's that's different than let's say if you've done your phd in high intensity interval training or well not even that but maybe you have done a some some kind of learning about it and and you know you know some things but you don't you don't remember the exact details but that that's a different kind of knowledge it's 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 not i, I would say that that's a, a kind of knowledge rather than gut feeling so uh, would you disagree with that uh you're breaking up a little bit can you want to do you want to um, i just yeah i just i just think that if you have learned something in the past then it's not necessarily gut feeling just because you can't um reference where the knowledge comes from so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and i i think i think that's yeah getting a gut feeling from an expert and something is probably a little bit better than getting a gut feeling from someone that isn't an yeah. expert yeah. Um, and that kind of touches on the Dunning-Kruger effect a little bit. Um, I throw that one in there. Have you ever heard of that before? Yes. Yes. The the, the more the more the, when you, when you learn more, you when when you don't know anything, you think that you know much more than you do. Then you start to learn more, and you realize how little you know. And and then when you learn a lot more, you get to that kind of expert level. Then you it starts to go up. Again, you you do know quite quite a bit, but but you don't get to that absurd level of confidence that you have when you when you don't really know anything. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I think there's uh, on your outline here. I think there's a good place. So I'll put in a couple anecdotes around that that are kind of hopefully eye opening for people in terms of expertise and, and knowledge and certainty and that type of stuff. But um, but yeah, that um, I guess if we wanted to move into the other. Uh, the next type of annoying would be the knowing from authority, which um, it could be, you know, if you know something because you read it in a blog or you know something because you heard it from a coach or you know something because you heard it on a podcast even. Um, these are types of knowing through authority. And um, I guess with training, um, one thing that I talk with my athletes about is is that when you maybe you go into your week and training peaks and you know, this you've set up the week for your athlete. What most athletes are going to perceive that as is 
from Monday to Sunday is all the same level of evidence to them. It's an argument from authority. Coach set this out, therefore do it, therefore will work, right? Um, but one of the things I try to explain with my athletes is, is that you might see that as an argument from authority, but like when I put those things in there, each one of those workouts has a diff- different level of evidence that I would have attached to them. So if we're going to use the interval <laughs> analogy, we're just going to keep, I guess it's going to be the theme of the of the podcast here. But, you know, if I put intervals in for the week, I'm going to have a problem, a fairly high level of certainty about the effectiveness of those intervals uh, that I'm prescribing. But maybe later in the week, they have a race. And the day before that, I have a pre-race interval session set up for them. Well, I had to reason my conclusion around that uh, interval or that interval session and its effectiveness. And so because I have a less amount of certainty about it, I I want my athletes to understand that there's different levels of certainty in my decision-making so that if something isn't working for them, it's not like, like I said, this authority figure just kind of giving in something in terms of being very dogmatic about it. I don't know if you have anything, any thoughts on that or something similar. No, just to clarify, you're saying that doing intervals as part of a, let's say, general preparation program to improve your fitness, there's a high level of evidence for that. But doing intervals the day before a race to perform better on race day, uh, there's not that much scientific evidence for that. So it's more about things like experience, anecdotal evidence, and and even, as you said, reasoning, why might this work? Uh, what might the mechanisms be, even though you don't necessarily know it? Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, log- logical reasoning. But that's not the same level of evidence as the intervals you did just for fitness improvement earlier in the week. Yeah. Um, so behind the scenes, there's different levels of evidence. But for the athlete, they're probably just looking at that whole week with the same level of evidence. Mm. Yeah. Right, as an argument from authority. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the, the next one would be reasoning. And some I think some books call this rationalizing, but, you know, reasoning conclusions to things. Um, so, uh, for example, if you were going to, um, for example, like maybe this, this example is a little bit dated, but because um, we actually, I guess we have a little bit of evidence to, to um to come to a conclusion on this but uh let's say like you know if if you get hot you're going to perform worse in in terms of endurance performance okay so so but if you look at a white kit versus a black kit well black absorbs more heat energy so or radiation and so you could assume that that kit might warm up more and therefore affect the thermoregulation of the athlete. And therefore you, if you're given the choice between a white and a black kit um, in terms of like, which one you want to wear to a hot, bright race here in Australia, then maybe you might pick the white kit over the black kit just for the reason conclusion. Now, if you talk to Simon Jones, he, I guess they did some research on it when he was back at sky and that's not as big of a difference as, um, you might think, 
so you can see like how actual science would be go against the, the reason conclusion. But a lot of times we have to, there's a lot of reasoning that goes on behind the scenes in coaching. I think, I think uh, a lot more than we, than we maybe care to recognize, but it, we have to kind of say that there is uh, high levels of, or uh, there's a good chance that our reason conclusions can be faulty if we're lacking science so right uh, in lieu of science and coming up with a reason conclusion to something then uh, we should be aware that it is just a reason conclusion and it is not as high on the level of evidence as like actually having numerous scientific studies to base your conclusions on um yeah yeah uh, yeah so um and then i guess the last one would be scientific method the or knowing through the scientific method although like i said some books would have between reasoning and rationalizing they would have empiricism which would be ga um, gaining knowledge or have through uh observation but um maybe like a less structured form of observation than the scientific method yeah. um but yeah the scientific method you know that kind of structured way of finding truth is um you know, that's the highest knowledge that we have. And that you, you can say, how do we know that's the best? <laughs> and you can just say, well, because it works, right? You can just look at places like medicine. There's a good example where, you know, just from the point where we decided to start putting science, having science-based medicine, our, the, the practice of medicine and its, and its outcomes have greatly benefited. And so in this whole conversation, you, I've, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can look to medicine for a lot of this because there's a lot more money in medicine. There's a lot more people in medicine and this is how they are thinking already. So it's not like I'm coming up with anything uh, spectacular here. Um, this is something that, uh, you know, a much bigger and well-funded field is already blazing the trail with. Um, we're just kind of, borrowing and borrowing ideas from them and at the end of the day so but one of the things maybe a lot of people don't understand and this could probably be its own podcast episode within itself is just talking about how you apply science because even within scientific studies not all scientific studies are at the same level of evidence you can't just throw down like one study and just be like this is it because right this so there's you know a well-done meta-analysis is going to be better than a maybe a training study with no control, right? There's, so that, or like a retrospective study versus a prospective study. Um, so, and just kind of and realizing maybe something with with uh, athletes like pro cyclists, maybe that's all you're ever going to get is these rough uh, retrospective studies because. Um, like Schrodinger's cat, like if actually taking the measurements or the measurements that you'd want to take from a pro cyclist could actually affect the outcome. You know, if you're uh, one of the examples I use is if, if you want, to, you're never going to probably know what, um, uh, what's going on within the muscle of an athlete in the tour de France in the middle of that event. Cause you would need a muscle biopsy 
And as soon as you take that muscle biopsy, that person's race is over. That's That would be just silly to do that until we come up with some very non-invasive ways of investigating those things, right? Um, but I, I, guess, I guess it's really important that when you are, you know, using science and reading studies and things like that to understand that there's bad studies out there. There's studies that are done well but aren't going to be considered at as as high a piece of evidence as other ones. So the tricky thing I think here in practice is just kind of keeping them all in your mind and trying to understand where you got your information and, and kind of, you know, even if you can't remember if it was a good study or not, or maybe you, you know, you don't have the, um, the wherewithal to take to, 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 to consider them all or to consider where you're getting the information and how you're coming to that conclusion. Um, I guess just trying to hold on to it as much as possible and having the argument there and the references there so that you can understand when something else is coming in that would make you change your mind. And does that make sense to you, I guess? Yeah, yeah, definitely it does. And and I think at least how I think about it is when, when reading scientific literature is uh, one thing that I'm looking for is, is there any kind of scientific consensus around the topic or or is there not scientific consensus? And and if there is some kind of consensus, I mean, the point with science and the scientific method is that we should never say anything with like 100% certainty, but you can, mm-hmm. you can increase your confidence in, in something being, uh, being true versus not true. If you have a lot of studies, a lot of good meta-analysis, uh, you have large, control studies uh, on on a topic made by multiple research groups not just one so you had all of those those sorts of things and and that's where actually tools like twitter can also be quite useful to see what the scientists themselves are saying what discussions they're having is there a lot of debate around whether certain papers are or certain topics are val- mm-hmm. or oh. valid or or if there's consensus around them or not basically yeah yeah and it was crazy is like when you look um in the twitter sphere or in the layman's areas or the blogs or something like that of like how certain people are about things like maybe like polarized training and then you look at scientists are still debating it right like mm-hmm. there's that uh those um counterpoints that came out on MSSE between it was like Mark Burnley and Jones versus uh, Carl Foster and Seiler. And I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the other authors on those papers, but those were the two cohorts of pro and against. And, you know, I went and read through all of that. And basically the take home from that was that was a nice exchange, but I question of whether uh, Seiler and Foster are really from like the sources that they were actually citing to promote their case. I don't even know that they were like really great sources to promote those cases. That's not, it's not a dish on them or anything like that. I think they had, it was a, it was an enjoyable exercise. I think for both, I think Um, there didn't seem to be any kind of animosity or, and I, and I don't think there was any kind of like ideological clinging I just think that it was like, here's our evidence. And another side was like, nah, that's just, nah. Yeah, nah. That's Mark Burnley's phrase. Yeah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an Australian phrase. But if you were going to ask Mark Burnley um, what his favorite thing is, is just saying, yeah, nah to things. So, yeah. Um, 
Mark, Mark Burley was on the podcast to talk about yeah, yeah. that in at the beginning of 2022. So I'll try to link to that episode in the show notes. Um, but yeah, that's a that was a really good example. And and I think also you could maybe it would be easy to listen to, for example, or read that exchange, or even more so if you just listen to because I. I didn't have the other side on the podcast after that exchange. I only had Mark Burnley on to to discuss it because we also had some other things to discuss. But if you listen to that episode with Mark Burnley, it would be easy as a let's say layman to just get the conclusion that okay, polarized training doesn't work. That's not that wasn't the point of the exchange. The point was that is there evidence that polarized training is better than other uh, training intensive distributions or not? And that was what mm. Burnley and uh, colleagues were arguing against and, and I guess put down some some pretty good arguments for why there's not evidence to say that polarized training is better than, than other methods. Yeah, yeah. It's and But if you end up all of a sudden... Um, uh, training in that way and it, and it and it works for you more power to you right yeah. like um, the, no judgment here i'm sure even mark burling wasn't it wouldn't be it'd be like good you're you've gotten faster and i th- and i think that's basically what they were saying they were like yeah you can do either maybe you yeah. can get benefits yes, exactly. from either right exactly right? So, yeah um um yeah i I think it's an interesting conversation. And one of the things I always, when I always look at it, I was like, you know, there's, there's this one big similarity between them both. And that's a large amount of volume at a low intensity. Mm. So take that. That's what I take home from that conversation is (laughs) that is important. (laughs) Um, at at least from what we can tell. Um, yeah. So I guess, one of the questions that I, that's important to ask is related to this conversation. Um, since we're talking about science here is, uh, is what does it mean to train with science? I think you and I would probably both agree. It's really sexy within the coaching world to say, this is science-based, right? Or this is evidence-based. And, um, so I'm going to, I'll take you down a rabbit hole real quick here. Um, about this, uh, well, let's let's have a thought experiment and and let's imagine that you were able to read every single scientific paper that about training, physiology, all that kind of stuff. You were able to read it all and you were able to retain it all. That'd be again getting into this omni- omniscient type of being. Um, even if you could read all of the papers out there and retain it all you still wouldn't be able to make every single decision in your training of you and your athletes based on science. At some points, you're going to have to reason a conclusion about something. You're going to have to go from the gut. You're going to have to use these lower forms of evidence, right? So this is like one end of the spectrum. So there's just no way to always make every single decision based solely on some kind of research that's available. But on the other side, you could have imagined like some you know, coach that doesn't read any science, doesn't want to be associated with the science claims or being, you know, he's just, you know, someone's dad or something like that, right? <laughs> I mean, you, we can we can kind of conceive of this individual. Um, at some point, this person is going to accidentally 
if they're worth their salts in, in endurance performance and they make athletes get faster, they're going to stumble into something that's science-based, right? They're going to prescribe intervals along the way. They're, they're going to increase volume or, you know, they're going to tell their athlete to eat more carbs at some point. Like they're, they're just going to stumble into something that's science-based. So these are our two points on that spectrum. So, so somewhere in between that, they're, they're, we all fall on there. And, and so if, if even the most science-based person can't be making all of their um, decisions off of science, and even the least likely person to consider themselves science-based is um, somehow falling into science-based decisions, we really have to kind of say, well, what is, what is being science-based, right? And that comes down to probably a conversation that you're going to have. If you're the athlete, you'd be asking the coach specifically, well, what, what makes you science-based? And, and so I always think that's kind of an interesting bit of skepticism on my point and maybe a little bit of buyer beware or whatever. I don't know. What's, what's your thoughts, Michael? Yeah. Um, I guess I would, I would actually look at it a bit different. Like I, I would say that the person that does things more based on experience, let's say, and not reading the science papers, but they are uh, stumbling upon things that are still in the scientific literature. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them science-based because they are reducing mm-hmm. it more based on experience. I wouldn't mm-hmm. even, you say that they fall on spectrum. I agree in terms of what their methods, what they do, but not in mm-hmm. terms of, but I, I don't place any value in the, in the science-based uh, let's say title or label uh, necessarily because there are examples of uh, great coaches that have achieved great results that that would not be at all uh, science-based or they or at least very little science-based per se they would even though as you say a lot of the methods would be overlapping with with what is also known from the from the scientific literature so so the way i would think about it is um the what, what i would put value in as a uh, it's not not as a label because everybody can say that they're performance based, but actually, like just thinking about what is the performance outcome, like what what are the improvements that you can get for your athletes or get for yourself if you're a self coached athlete, and then using all the different tools in your, at your disposal, which could be reading the scientific literature, but it could also be being really, let's say, almost. Um, like try, trying to reverse engineer things based on experimental data uh, em- empirical observations as you said that might not necessarily be scientific but they could be empirical and it could be a very detailed n equals one for you uh, especially with self-coach athletes or a coach working with an individual athlete so so those are yeah I, I think that that's where i would fall like i wouldn't i, I agree with you on the everybody exists on that spectrum and if they but but i i would yeah, I would maybe use science-based more as a how how much do you use that tool? And and I think that uh, it's a great tool to have. I do think it's a great tool to have, but I think that you also want to have other tools like your experience and your ability to try to reverse engineer things and and use empirical observations and so on. Um. So I just thought of another question for you. Then taking over the show. <laughs> um. So. Uh, based on what on the video you watched and based on um, and based on the conversation that we've had so far, 
do you do you see can you see a value or maybe a potential loss if someone was i guess just reading a lot of literature and not connecting it with a kind of epistemological approach like this can you this is this is i guess a good way to point out the value of of what we're talking about here is is that you can just hop into all of these papers and you know read them all um but i also think like if you don't have like a good epistemological framework and to in philosophy to go along with how you uh, consume these and and apply them into your practice i think that i mean this is like the the chassis to the engine almost i think what do you sorry think? so the, so the question so the question is if there if there can be a ne- if 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 it could be negative if even if you read all the science and know, know a lot of the literature but you don't have the critical thinking skills that we have been talking about here to to apply that is that the question yeah yeah can you i guess can you uh, maybe some maybe i'm leading you a little bit here but um you know can you see the benefit of where having this philosophy and understanding levels of knowledge and that type of stuff and uh, would be like a almost like an essential framework for just Yes, uh, I think. Yeah, I think the. I think it's. I think it's essential. I, I, it's. A, it's a discussion I've had, not on the podcast because it's not. It's not about that, but actually, in terms of how the world has changed in the last thirty years, or well, it's always changing, right? But let's say since I went to school, that a lot of the learning that you did was learning facts, right, from books, geography, biology, mm-hmm. languages mathematics those sorts of things but but these days what you really need when you everything is at the tip of your finger with your mobile phone that's not really useful i mean okay there are some things that you should know because it's just like it's it's good to have like a little bit of facts uh that that you have retained but it's more about like even in in schools at a very young age like i think people should be taught critical thinking skills and and Mm -hmm. uh how to acquire information and and yeah be skeptical those sorts of things so i i 100 agree and that's why i guess why we're or we're a big reason for having <laughs> yeah, this yeah. conversation that i think it's very important and and it's funny it's it could if you're if you're not into philosophy or something like that it could be a really really boring conversation and i apologize to the listeners that aren't excited about this but it's one of those things it's like it's trying to it's like trying to train an athlete and having no care or concept of how physiology works, right? It's, it, it, to me, it, it, it's, it's like that. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's good to know your f- philosophy and understand like how you're applying things and why you're applying things and yeah, that type of thing, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess we want to move on to the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's move on. Uh, I think that we're going to get into things like, pseudoscience and and a bunch of other uh potential pitfalls that that you might come across so yeah i want to yeah through those yeah so you know on the, in the video i just kind of started listing off things that get in the way of finding truth and you know create biases and things like that so 
Um, some of these overlap with each other, um, but we'll just start listing them off, I guess. Um, pseudoscience. Um, pseudoscience would be, for example, would be not good. Um, if you look at the definition of pseudoscience, and I've found this out since I've done the um, the formal definition of pseudoscience as I understand it, is something that is looks like science but is not falsifiable. So uh, I think one of the examples I've seen for this is Freud's st- arguments about, you know, whatever his, his things are like, you know, um, was it at, at the adipose complex or whatever, like, you know, these things like they're not falsifiable because they're just like anything, you know, like one such you could, I'm trying to think of a good one for training though. Um, Like, oh, I don't know. Do you have a good one for like pseudoscience or like something? No, that's if, not that's, if, if, if that's the definition, like, like, no, I, I'm hard pressed. I mean, I, I would come back it, to the whole how, how like it's it's down to how much you want it. <laughs> Coming back to that yeah. example that we talked about before. So yeah. Be yeah. So pseudoscience would be something that would like you just can't falsify. Um, yeah. So um, like I guess a lot of these um like people doing studies on, uh, I guess, like alternative medicines, right? Where they show the benefits of something like, um, um, what's with the needles? Acupuncture, acupuncture, right? And if you do set up the study wrong, like there's just no way that, there's no study that like convinces the practitioners that it doesn't exist even, you know, even though you go out and there's, so yeah, pseudoscience is going to get in the way of that. uh, so the other thing is people using anecdotes as data. But anecdotes uh, are still on, yeah. on pseudoscience. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would say colloquially, that's not really how we think of pseudoscience necessarily, or at least not how yeah. I think about it. I, I would think about pseudo, an example of pseudoscience would be, let's say, taking a very mechanistic study, like something happens at a cellular level, and then you extrapolate that to mean that, okay, this type this means that if we do this type of training that caused some sort of signaling in the cell then it must also mean that yeah you do this and you get these uh training effects or health effects that that's something that you see a lot and and it's it's almost it's also seen a lot in not not just in not in papers themselves as as much even as in media like instagram accounts or podcasts or youtube videos that are taking mm-hmm. like these snapshots of like one study and then portraying them to be much more important than extrapolating from them. But I mean, I get, okay, that's not this, the definitions of pseudoscience, but that's, that's a bit how, how I kind of understand the term mm-hmm. at least. And I think it's often used that way. Yeah. 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 I think I, I would uh, agree as that is a colloquial definition. Mm-hmm. And that gets into a, uh, one thing that, um, interesting conversation about applying science you know if you have some type of you know you do a study where you have a um an exercise um bout uh, we're going to use high intensity intervals again (laughs) and let's say you you after that you take a blood draw and you look at maybe mrna and that mrna is coding for a protein that is you know that improves endurance performance now that's a different level of knowing what the outcome is over doing an intervention with that and then seeing 
oh, the improvement in 20, um, 20 kilometer time trial performance. So, um, so you have to, so it's one of those things where if you, if all you have is an acute study, they, they do this actually too with, um, within intervals, the whole, um, time at or near VO2 max thing. Yeah. Like a lot of people use that as, as a proxy for how beneficial the, the interval bout is going to be. Now that's problematic because there's not a lot of intervention studies have actually compared two different time at or near VO2 maxes. So there's a lot, there's probably, I would I think from my experience that there's more reviews around time at or near VO2 max than actual intervention studies on time yeah. at or near VO2 max. Someone correct, someone can correct me on that or if, if I'm wrong. But, um, and then th- most people, I think or a lot of people forget all of the nuance that are in those reviews. <laughs> right. So, um, but if you have an acute interval study and it has a high time at or near VO2 max and you're comparing that, you know, you just have to say, well, this is, you say, I'm going to use this because it has a high time or near high, high time at or near VO2 max. But I know it's not as certain as if I saw this within an actual training study. Yeah. So that's where I get getting into where do you know what you know from? I mean, just be like, well, and I think a good example of that was some of the Tabata style intervals with Ronestead's stuff like at first i think he came out with an acute study and then i think that was followed up with a training study with the the same intervals in it and that's you know probably good study design to like start out with the acute get get all of the data that you off the exercise about acutely and then use the intervals in that study and then run a training study with it that's kind of how i did it um there's a lot of problems around that obviously because what is the universal control for a for an interval study that opens up a whole can of worms um but the point is is that is that is that acute study totally useless because it's not a training study no it can still inform your practice you just have to kind of put a pin in it as like well it's not a training study it's not an intervention study or i'm sorry it's not a meta-analysis so because it's lower on the tier you just are less certain of it and if you're talking with an athlete about that hates this interval session, um, maybe having realizing that you have less evidence for it than a, a whole body of research for it, maybe 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 you can drop and put something else in um, hmm. because you just don't have enough to back it up, back it up for them, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's that was I think a good tangent just to kind of get into. Um, like how to how to real, realize within the studies that you are looking at. Now, the problem with that would be is if you all all you have is molecular studies and and you're coming out and you're saying something like, yeah, this inter this uh, intervention or not even intervention, this exercise bout for whatever intervals or high torque. Uh, intervals or whatever you want to call it, this thing here, and all I have is mRNA data for it, and then I'm comparing it into a whole body of research that's all training studies, and then you're saying, I don't know, like this benefits uh, VO2 max more than this. That becomes problematic because you're yep. taking lower forms of evidence and trying to 
make a case against this whole body of research. Now, it's not to say that they're wrong. You know, maybe if we ran a bunch of studies 10 years down the line, we might find out that they are correct. Um, but this, but the fact is, is they just don't have the evidence to back up their claim and, they, and it should be, we should be honest about that. We should be, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know if there's anything else to dive into that. No, um, you were but, just going to move on to anecdotes, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, here's, like, anecdotes are really super sexy for us, I think, uh, as humans and, um, but anecdotes aren't data, like your multiple anecdotes that something works. If you wear this, you know, your lucky socks, you're there and you win a race every time you wear those socks. And like, that doesn't necessarily mean those socks make you win races. Right. Um, so, but like I said, we're humans, uh, our own experiences have a lot of weight on us. And I was actually, uh, just talking, sitting down and recording with, um, bunch of like sports scientist mates uh, over and, you know, having talking shop and uh, yeah, it came up like, yeah, we're all scientists here. We all think scientifically, but man, a sexy anecdote that, that within our practice, something like that, it really stands out. Like we're all, we're all susceptible to that. But at the same time, man, if you've got your anecdote that, that, that um, whatever intervention works and, but there's a whole scientific, body of research that says it doesn't then what what are we what are we doing here um so i'd say you can't but you know you should definitely be kind of critical of of that thought process i guess and uh, realizing that um uh, the other thing that's really big with humans is just confirmation bias right and motivate things like motivated reasoning and um uh just like and pattern seeking these are all things that we do. So you have to be really careful about that. And um, I think one of the big kind of confirmation biases I, I always find um, funny, a little bit frustrating, but let's, let's bust this myth right here. Um, um, and I'll get your feedback on it first. But what, what do you think of when people say coaches are ahead of the science? <laughs> uh yeah that's that's a really interesting one uh i'd i don't think you can say that necessarily I, I don't i don't think you can say that i think there are there, there may be things that coaches do that uh will later be proven by science to be effective but but it doesn't necessarily mean that coaches are ahead they might be behind in other areas and and also the reason that they did that might be just random chance rather than like having some exceptional intelligence or knowledge that not mm -hmm. av available to others so so i yeah i think i think it's also it's it's a false dichotomy it's i i think it's a false dichotomy so so it's a bit of a controversial take that generates clicks and views <laughs> so, so i don't <laughs> I, I, I don't yeah i i wouldn't necessarily agree with that that's not the uh, say that like science is ahead of coaches either or that one is better than the other but yeah, yeah i just i just don't really agree with the premise that that yeah know, and then they're doing different things right so so yeah yeah so how can you compare it I'll, I'll try to unpack this and try to extend the olive brands in the in but like i have to start out with being a little bit harsh like 
it's to me it's being a little bit intellectually arrogant like it's uh, that that but to me it's also a confirmation bias because it's it's only remembering the instances where the coaches got it right and there's no rec- recollection of when maybe the coach's practice was dead wrong right or when mm-hmm. um and so there's there's that part of it and um and then also getting back to our levels of knowledge like how do you know you're ahead of the science if you haven't done a science experiment to to show that you're ahead of the science cuz so you can't say you're ahead of the science without the experiment happening right and then after the, then yeah, then it gets into like after the experiment happens and you're like, oh, we've been doing this for ages. Stupid scientists should have just caught up and done this ex- science experiment, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's unfair. So let's, let's again, let's, so we have our criticisms here. Um, and the other thing that would be along with that is, you know, if you are saying, if if I'm sitting here saying like we should try to be and you are saying um, we should be trying to base as much as we can of our training off of science, that's not dogmatic, right? We're not trying to be dogmatic. We're just trying to push for be- better practice, and we're not saying I didn't. That you I didn't. I, I, I just want to. Uh, I didn't say exactly that. I. That's not what. No, I'm no, saying. no, no. I'm just saying yeah. like for people that would be saying towards yeah. us, okay. like oh, oh, you know if we're saying like, no, you guys aren't ahead of the science. Let's be real here. This isn't us trying to impose dogma, mm, right? Yep. This isn't us. This isn't us trying to say you have to, you have to follow the science, yeah. right? No science, not science Nazis over here or something like that. But, yeah. um, but let's, but you know, the riff, we can just, we can end the riff. Let, let's look at what it really is. Right. Um, it, coaching and science should be a mutualism. It should be, um, I'm going to use this word wrong, but it should be symbiotic in a sense. It should be the scientists are uh, asking the coaches and the practitioners what you think works and then um, trying to come up with uh, experiments that will help the practice along of whether or not it works. And then on the other side, um, you know, the coaches will hopefully be appreciating that the scientists aren't the fastest things in the world sometimes, but we have to have this like back and forth. Right. Um, It's just, uh, you know, there's a number and and a number of the pro teams are world tour teams are doing that. You know, you see, um, you know, um, try, I, I'm going to miss a few of them, but like, uh, you definitely see, uh, DSM, they were publishing their research through tune and Deo. I'm sure there was some other teams that Deo was working with. Um, I just saw a paper with Trek Sigurfrido, uh, and two of, uh, uh, two individual individuals from that team were on that paper and they were using, I would imagine they were using Trek Sigurfrido data. Like that's, that's where we want to be, right? Like we want the scientists and the practitioners in the field working together. And we don't need to have this, like, I don't know, like we were ahead of the science. Let's, let's just be honest. Like that's just, just epistemologically not possible. I mean, you just got lucky in that one thing and you're just forgetting about the other. So let's, let's be real and just cut the crap and work together. Right? Like there's, there's a, 
let's let's move forward together. I guess is let's yeah. let's. Uh, um, so I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, but no, that's, no, I think I think it's yeah. Just to wrap summarize, I guess coaching generates a lot of hypotheses that science can test, and some of them will be proven right, and some of them will be proven wrong. Also, depending on which coach it is, you could say that some coaches are a bit not more not not ahead, but they get they use more of the hypotheses that end up being proven maybe correct rather than the ones that end up being proven wrong and Mm -hmm. uh, i mean you could see for example now there's a reasonable amount of scientific evidence that the whole low carb high fat thing isn't necessarily great for endurance performance but Mm -hmm. we and we have had Coaches have been using that before science started investigating it in, in the endurance sports context, really. Not everybody, but some coaches have been using that. And then you could say that, well, okay, some some try that hypothesis. And, and I guess, at least on average, based on what we know now, they probably didn't get it correct. But, but not everybody used it in the past. So, And, and that actually brings up a really good example, I think, uh, breaking the fourth wall here again I, when i broke the record for the pre-interval length um for when we were f- first talking about <laughs> we were talking about um not the pre-interval but the, the pre the pre-interview discussion three hours powered through that um but yeah when we were talking about um i think we brought it up with you know you get one triathlete that does well at at iron man and they become like the pinnacle of of what to do and, and everyone forgets that all the other athletes that won before them that didn't do that thing, mm. right? Yeah. And I think when you the, you brought when you brought up the low carb, high fat diet, I just remember it was a few years ago that guy won on it or something like that. And then before that, wasn't there a guy that won after training indoors the whole time or something like yeah. that? Like each one of these, probably, yeah. each one of these, each one of these podiums brings up a whole new fad. And but it's, it's just funny how the that works like this is exciting it's new but and we connect with it but we forget to look at like all of the observational data that we had before that yeah um to be honest i in triathlon in long distance triathlon in particular it is i can really understand the temptation to do that because they're compared to road cycling or even uh, olympic distance and sprint distance triathlon there's so little research there's almost nothing just because it's not interesting to study because it's not an Olympic sport. I mean, Olympics drive so much in, in science. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's, there's very little in, in long distance triathlon. So, so I can really understand why people are looking mm-hmm. at the a- anecdotes, but, but yeah, it's, just, it's a bit, it's a dangerous thing to, to just go mm-hmm. based on that. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back. It's not to say that this is wrong. Yeah. It's just a different level of evidence and maybe we shouldn't be chasing yeah. after it just yeah. yet. Maybe we should. Yeah hang back a little bit and watch the we want to see what really works but um this gets into a conversation about the latest and greatest right the 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 latest people are looking for the performance edge so they want to get the latest bit and all of a sudden you can't get and we have the least amount of evidence and research about that new thing to understand how to best apply it so it's it always is, is a constant battle of like you, you want the new thing so you can get the performance advantage, but it it takes time to determine truth and understand things, um, right? Like we just saw this with the vaccines and COVID, and 
the longer the experiments ran, the better idea we had how how the efficacy of those drugs uh, or interventions or whatever. So same thing is, is with with training, but instead of people's lives, it's it's your performance at a race. And you know, so some some re- initial paper comes out for saying beetroot juice is going to improve your performance and. Then you, you hop on that and then maybe you realize when you look at that study, it was all done with like fit college students or something like that. And right. How much was so, but you know, spending a few bucks on beetroot versus, you know, maybe there's another intervention where you're locked inside, inside of a hyperbaric chamber or something ridiculous like that. Right. Right. So yeah, gets into, or, Ke- or keto- low, ketones, low, yeah. ketones. That's very expensive <laughs> compared to yeah, yeah, juice. yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, I guess the, the other thing that kind of works in with this is well, there's the placebo effect of like you know you spend your money on something, you spend your money on it, on those ketones, and then obviously they're going to work because you spent the money on it. You have that you know, um, but it's, it's just you. It's your your n of one, and the placebo effect is real, and it has it, it and it definitely has an effect, and. But one of the arguments I bring up is like, well, if you have all these placebo effects, some of them you know are placebos versus some that you aren't, that aren't placebos. Well, are those all those placebo effects additive? My, well, that's outside. I, I should probably look up the research on that because I ask that question quite a bit. But it is a question to think about like, all right, well, if I've got these arrow booties on and they're really just a placebo effect and I have this other thing over here that I know is a placebo effect. Well, are the, is, do I get more performance because I've added the booties and the, and, and the, uh, and the other supplement together that are both placebo effects? Not to say, you know, booties are just yeah. a placebo effect, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then there's just like logical fallacies. Oh, would you then say, about, okay, here, devil's yeah. advocate. Yeah. Would you then say yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Makes, it, it makes sense to like, if, if you go for one intervention, that's, probably might have a placebo effect uh whether it's for performance or recovery like you can have your beetroot juice before your race or your uh booties for recovery it what is what is wrong is is there anything is there any reason not to do that if you actually get that effect even if it's from placebo um yes cost Mm. everything has a cost but if it's but if it's worth it to you like you want that half a percent yeah one percent improvement yeah, if an athlete has a security blanket that they need, like you know, tread carefully, right? Like it, one of the take homes with, with one of this is that, like, true or not true, you always have to lay it within the context of what the athlete will do. You could have, I think, a good example of that going back to intervals and pacing. There's some evidence to show that if you just do all-out efforts. Like when you just go out and you go hard as you can for three minutes, say you have a, you know, f- six by threes and you just go out hard as you can and the, you know, and the power output decays over time and the average output of those intervals would decay over time with that pacing where every single effort was an all out effort. I think there's evidence out there that, that would probably support that that would have a higher at or near VO2 max now. Mm. I think that's better. I think there's, I think there's evidence to say that that is better than just doing your intervals maximally paced as to try to get the highest average across them all. Now, guess which one I have my athletes do? 
Well, based on the question, I'm going to guess the latter one. And uh, or is that is that is that correct? The one so that's max, maximally, ma- maximally paced. Yeah, best effort across all aver- across average. All the, uh, best best average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the way I go because in the context of the athlete, the first one is miserable mm. and it's unsustainable. Yeah. yeah, and over time with the athlete, you know. What is sustainable is, is, you know, getting into my coaching philosophy, I guess. So, yep. yeah, you can come up with an argument that say that this 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 uh, way is better than the other, but really, is it worth it um, mm-hmm. versus the other one in the context of the athlete? Um, but yeah, but then there's um, yeah, so just logical fallacies get in the way. So those are always good to know, like post hoc ergo propter hoc, like. Um, after this, therefore, because of this, you know, um, again, it gets into, you know, I did this and I saw a benefit after it. And this is the only thing that explains it, right? Only the ketones explains me winning this race. Only riding on the trainer explains winning that race. Only the low carb, high fat explains winning that race. Like those are, that's post hoc ergo propter hop. Like there's probably a lot of other things that goes on. Like maybe like most athletes have ch- chosen the right parents. So don't forget that. <laughs> um, uh, but and there's a, what do we call the, some, something like the argument, argumentum ad populum. And I actually have one that I've changed called the intervention ad populum. Therefore, like everyone does this and it's always been done. Therefore, I will do it too. So, you know, things like the high torque um, sessions, uh, you know, everyone does this. This pro team does it. I'm going to, therefore I will do it too. Everyone does stop drills. I'm going to do stop drills. Everyone does high cadence drills. I will do them. Um, doing something just because everyone else seems to be doing it or what's in the, within the culture. Um, and I was going to have a little bit of a tangent on that. Like, uh, when I first got coached, I wasn't, wasn't brought up through a junior program or anything like that, where you start out, you know, in a state system or with a Devo team. I eventually was on a Devo team, but not really young. By the time I was coached, I had already had like a hard science degree. And you and I both know like, like that, that initial process in some kind of STEM field will at least start to heightening, heightening your critical thinking faculties, right? So our abilities. So um, just, just science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, just for those. Yeah. Yeah. STEM. Yeah. And, and so w- when my coach was prescribing things to me and I was right out of my first degree, I always had in the back of my head, like, how does he know this works? Hmm. What evidence does he have for this? So that was always the scientist kind of thinking about this. And that's what kind of got me down this path of, of going into exercise physiology, but also kind of questioning the thought process behind it of how certain is he that, th- that this is even going to work for me. And, you know, when people start making up intervals of like, and thinking about like what the outcome is going to be like, how, how do they know that? Like, how do we know? Why do you think two minute intervals are good for crits? Why? Right. Like not you, but other people, right? Like, you know, longer crits are for longer intervals are for this and shorter intervals are for this. Okay. Why? Why? Like, I'm interested, right? Um, so, but yeah, I guess that's just having conversations around that type of thing is, is um, for me personally, you know, 
in terms of coaching philosophy, I, I think I have a very small library of workouts. And I think a lot of them are, I haven't used in a long time. I just, I usually, because I, I just think there's a lot of stuff out there that doesn't have evidence for it. So why have someone do something that doesn't have great evidence for it when you can just have them ride their bike? So without going right. into the details of it, what what is that short list of workouts that you have? Uh, uh, definitely high intensity interval training, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but diff- um, you know different. Uh, like, I guess classic high intensity interval training. I have some of the Tabata style ones, and then the rest is uh, the st- things that are in, I guess, arguably in the heavy and moderate domain are prescribed to try to hit those domains and you know like over unders for me i haven't prescribed those in years they just seem weird to me to like do that i think there's research out there that shows it's not really that great um but like stomp drills i could bring those up i don't have those i don't do a lot of cadence stuff what are the things Um, you do in the heavy domain because that's something that always um has me thinking that there's there's not that much evidence that i've seen anyway on on intervals in the heavy domain uh or workouts in the heavy domain so yeah what what do you do there like classic threshold or tempo or um honestly they're really handy for um people who have day jobs to get a lot of training stress in in two hours Mm. Mm. yeah I mean, then, right? And it's, and there's a lot of other like hypotheses that I have. But, that would, but that would be an example of the evidence for them would be more along the lines of reasoning and, and, and experience mm-hmm. rather than scientific mm-hmm. evidence. Yeah. 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 And you can say like acutely, I always forget this word, um, the, uh, there's like that isocapnic response that's mm-hmm. in between the two ventilatory thresholds so that you could say, mm-hmm. well, there's somewhere to start a hypothesis because there's something physiologically unique there. And I think there's also some research that has been out there that shows, I think like molecular, mar- different molecular markers that occur after exercising in different domains. So we're at least starting to understand that, right? Mm-hmm. I always think it's crazy when you look at the literature how much we really understand versus like how complex some some interval studies get or I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm sorry how complex some interventions and workouts get from coaches you know mm, people yeah. that argue just the smallest details about something and are like how did we get to this point of understanding something that fine when there's so many other things there's so many cascades that could show that not to be correct i guess yeah um, so yeah, it, it, having cherished intervals could be potentially detrimental. Like thinking like this is af- absolutely works. And I guess, I guess we could jump ahead and, uh, I'll throw, I'll throw something at you here. Um, do you ever watch Veritasium? No, no, I haven't. Don't know what it is. Okay. Veritasium is like a big science-based YouTube channel. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I'm stealing it from them. I'm definitely stealing it from them. Um, so I have a rule that I'm thinking about and 
I want you to guess what that rule is. And it's a rule about a set of numbers. It's a rule about numbers. And I'm going to get to you a set of numbers. And I want you to give me a set of numbers back. I will tell you, so my set of numbers will follow the rule. Mm. And then you will give me your set of numbers. And you will try to tell me, we'll try to figure out if your set of numbers figure, uh, follows the rule. And then you're going to try to figure out what, what the rule is. Okay? Right. Okay. Well, hopefully I explained that correctly. Yep. All right. So my first series of numbers is three, six, nine. What's your series of numbers? 12, 15, 18. Okay, so it follows my rule. What's my rule? Uh, that it is uh, a number that can be divided by three? No. Right. So should I do I have to give a, a different set of numbers now, a, a different guess? Yeah, we can just do that. I'll get my three, six, nine or, was my first one. Unless you want yeah. me to give you another series. Oh, give, yeah, numbers. give me another series. Yeah, okay. That's how it works. Got it. 9, 12, 15. So <laughs> what can it be if it's not divided by 3? Come on, I bet, the, I bet the listeners are just screaming at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, is it just... Uh, so, well... Three, uh, but all you can do, all you can in, do is... Incre increments of 3. I'm going to try 1, 4, and 7. So increments of three. Okay, follows my rule. What's my yeah. rule? Increments of that, three. Yeah, yeah. Like you. you no, that's not three. You, yeah. You're wrong. Okay. Do you want to just keep one just more, keep throwing one numbers more. at me? What? One, one yeah. more. One. One more example. Then you have to tell me yeah, if so, I don't. If I can't get it. Just, 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 just throw some. Uh, do you want? Do I have to give you another set of numbers again? Well, okay. Let me let me try this. Um, one seventeen thirty seven. Follows my rule. Any whole number? No. Okay. <laughs> Give me one more series. One more and and then if I don't get three three sixty ninety. My apologies for the I apologize yeah. for the editing you have to do for this, but <laughs> um if you have no, it, but, I think uh, I, I give up. You have to tell me. Okay. Okay. Well, what you should do is notice how you're like, just keep trying to think what it is. You're using your bias to kind of formulate what your guesses are. Do something mm -hmm. where, is, where you're not using your bias to formulate your guess. Do something okay. crazy. Okay. Um, 100, 200, 300. Okay. Follows my rule. Get crazier. 1.5, 10,000, 5 million. Follows my rule, get crazier. You're trying, my, you're coming up with hypotheses and you're that trying to no, prove those are, them. Those are, those are not hypotheses, okay, those are just okay, numbers. Okay, so you're, okay. <laughs> I, I can't find anything that, that does not follow your rule. Um, mm. Well, that's why I tried to point 1.5. Uh, minus, minus 2, minus 4, minus 6. Doesn't follow my rule. So any positive number? No. Yeah, now you have to tell me. Sorry. 
<laughs> any numbers that any increasing numbers set an increasing number oh okay. okay so if you would have said eight two seven yeah i would have said it doesn't follow my rule so okay. that's what's trying to get you to so funny how that works though the the what would have in that scenario what would have really given you the most information is to give something that would have been totally left field is to try to disprove what your thinking was. But mm-hmm. most people, the first thing they do when they hate, when they hear three, six, nine is to do what you did. Yeah. Give a, 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 so they, they're thinking of, of what the rule is and they're trying to emulate it. Yeah. Right. As opposed to throwing, throwing the rule out the window and trying to disprove it. Mm. And people are like, well, what does this have to do with endurance training? Well, it has a lot to do with it, I think. Because if, you know, if you're the athlete that says, well, I do stomp drills every year and I get a really good sprint from it, therefore, that works. Well, your, your idea is that it works already and you're putting it in every year. What would really tell you if it didn't work or not is if you didn't do it. Hmm. and people like so people might be afraid to do that because okay well now i have a year where maybe my athlete isn't doesn't isn't able to sprint as well because he didn't do his stomp drills or didn't do this intervention or didn't do that intervention um but at the same time you can argue well maybe you have people chasing after a bunch of workouts and interventions that don't work as well as you think they do and you could just have them riding their bike yep so, um, yeah, that it's funny how our brain works like that. And this is kind of how coming from building a lot of my process from the ground up and having an understanding of what evidence there is for everything and when I will limit its use and when I won't use it or yeah, when I will use it and when I won't use it, like there's certain things that I've are that are old that I would use in certain situations. Maybe it's a trainer and they, and, and they just need something to, that keep their mind busy. Um, does it have to be super science-based if it, if it helps them get through the trainer season, you know, something like that. Right. But at the same time, um, there's a lot of stuff that I've coached successful athletes and they've never touched some of these interventions. It would be really common, I would say. Hmm. And can you give examples of those interventions that they have not high made? torque, high torque intervals, yeah. like, right. Yeah. And maybe, and, uh, I guess we get into a little bit of a conversation about that. And like, as an exercise as well, like, um, there was, there's people that are promoting it and, um, and one of these people that promoted it on Twitter, I asked them, I was like, just curious. It's like, well, last time I checked the literature on it, Oh, uh, there was a, a now literature review uh, by uh, last author was Ronestad. I forget who was first author, but you know, this is 2014 or 16 or something like that. And it's been a while. So maybe they've had some new studies out and this person that was promoting it had a very specific intervention or workout that they were prescribing, you know? And I was like, Oh, well, if he's a sports scientist and he's prescribing these. We, we must have like some good research out now since the last time I checked up on it. So I just asked and I was like, 
all right, well, do you have a good training study for this? And the response was an acute study. It was uh, one of like Peter Leo's new study, which I haven't had a chance to read, but it just showed the importance of torque within pro cyclists. Mm. And this gets into, well, this is a reason and conclusion, mm. right? Um, that this, uh, this, this, this is important. Um, to simply like just saying that having a high torque results in high torque or that there's, I mean, I can see the reasoning for it, but I think, I think one of the big points was, is that, is that they were saying it was fundamental. And I, to me, I, I think you would need a higher level of evidence if you're going to call something fundamental. To me, like high intensity interval training is, we could, it's fair to say is fun, fundamental because we have a lot of evidence and papers to show that. You could probably say that with volume, high volume, low intensity training. I think we have a lot of evidence for that. And I think we have a lot of evidence for carbohydrate ingestion. Um, but does to say it's fundamental, I was just, do we want to call this fundamental if we don't have any, like any training studies to Bennett to show that this is beneficial? Yeah. Um, and that just digressed. It just turned into a, a whatever. Um, but one of the responses that was said to me was that this intervention is causes a complicated cascade um, and it's hard to isolate and all of these things. And I respect this person a lot, but I came back and I just said, well, every training event intervention ever has a complicated cascade, physiology and neuromuscular, yada, 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 and is arguably hard to isolate to an extent. So this is just kind of special pleading for this intervention. Now, I have to be careful. Like I'm not saying no, we shouldn't do it. You go ahead and do it. If you feel it has been, it has benefits. And I honestly hope it does have benefits because I would hate to have all these athletes that have been doing it for years and it mean, and it and has no benefit. Um, but one of the other things with the, with the high saying, you know, here's high torque and it's, uh, we see high torque and, um, uh, and professional athletes, therefore training intervention. Well, my thinking is, is, well, if you did training in any other training intervention that's out there that has evidence for it, and you didn't see an, an increase, you saw an increase in power over a 40K or whatever, wouldn't, and you didn't see an increase in cadence, wouldn't you assume that that also increased torque? Yeah. So wouldn't sure. there be a bunch of other things that increase torque too without having to actually do torque intervals? Mm -hmm. So... I could totally see how it would be a missing stimulant. I can definitely see how it would be kind of a missing piece in a puzzle, maybe with really highly trained people or something like that. But like, let, let's get together and do some, some real training studies before we have a definite conclusion about like, this is how we even run the intervention. Right. Mm -hmm. So yep. touchy subject for people, but like, I think it's a good one to look at because it's kind of, big right now right and and this isn't something i've done a super big deep dive on it i just can but again getting back to like having an understanding of um this process at least i can i can lay out the argument and say this is what i would like to see in order for me to fully accept this as fundamental right like i can lay the right
Do you so. have any other pet peeves, uh, training interventions <laughs> similar? Uh, yeah. So man, I've got tons of them. Um, I, I think, I guess some of the ones that are like the cooling base layers, um, man, the cooling base layers on hot days. It's just, it's just funny to me. Like, um, for all of mankind, we have been, we've been, uh, putting on more layers of clothing to stay warm and taking off layers of clothing to stay cool. But the modern cyclist is now putting on layers in order to stay cool. Now, again, it goes back to, I'm just reasoning a conclusion that this is probably hotter. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of people that have spent their money on this that are, you know, have motivated reasoning to an extent to say, well, it it feels good for me. But at the end of the day, really, the, the, the burden of proof is on the manufacturers of the cooling base, base layers to do some third party party studies. This will probably never happen, but some third party studies in hot environments with train cyclists with and without the um, uh, with, with and without the uh, the base cooling base layer on. Right. Mm. Like that's how and. Um, to my knowledge, I don't think that exists, uh, but it could. But I, it seems there. It's it's a, it's an uphill fight, I think. But that is one of the things that kind of comes to mind because it's hot down here. Um, yeah. Uh, but the other one that kind of um, that gets me, and I talk about quite a bit, is um, the. Uh, um, and this is one for coaches, and I wish we with coaches. You, you and me, Michael, we're going to bind, bind together on this, um, is this idea of the technological black boxes that are becoming hmm. uh, more um, prevalent, I guess. Yeah. Now, and this, okay, so for example, like maybe like the Garmin watch is spitting out your VO2 max interval, or no, sorry, your VO2 max after you did a hard five minute effort or something like that. If you, if, if you bought the watch and you're looking at that, then, okay, that's a black box I can live with. Like that's, that's a black box that can be sorted out with the free market. Right. Um, If you don't believe that, that then maybe you, you don't see any value in that number. Get us getting spit out to you without ever being on a met cart. Then, okay. Um, but the problem where I have, or the where I do have the problem with the technological black boxes is when there is technology that's specifically marketed to coaches mm. to work with athletes, and this gets into like, um, what is HRTSS, for example? Is do you know what that is? I I kind of know how it's calculated, I guess, or the principles of it. Not exact formula, maybe, but. Yeah, like yeah. I use it. I don't know. Do you use it as well? I don't. I don't. I don't use TSS at all, to be honest. So okay, okay. Yeah. But there's. I don't. But, I don't. I don't. I, I don't. I couldn't care less. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I think you kind of kind of grasp the the concept of of. I mean, I'm um, thinking. Of, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of things like you mentioned Garmin and the V2 Max. Like that's pretty harmless, but. Mm-hmm. But the Garmin is now, they will give you suggestions. Today's suggestions, 40-minute base run, uh, one-hour interval bike, they say those sorts of things. And uh, and that's completely based on 
the black box. You have things mm. like the Whoop and similar devices that take a bunch of scores and try to put them together into some sort of comp- composite score, and then they give you advice for what you should or shouldn't do that day. Uh, again, completely black box. Um, you have various attempts at AI software that mm-hmm. uh, is also a kind of black box, which would be fine if it if there was any evidence that it actually gave you good training, which there isn't, to my knowledge. Um, so yeah, yeah, those those sorts of things. Um, I think that that actually attempts to give actionable advice, but there's no transparency in how it's in how it's done and uh and and no evidence that it works that's yeah mm-hmm. that's i agree with that as a as an issue yeah i mean i wouldn't have any issue if if someone just bought that watch i think i'd it's more of i think maybe maybe what you're talking about is you have an athlete that gets a workout spit to them that is out to them that is completely different than what you're prescribing for them and now you have another cook in the kitchen i'm also, I'm also thinking is that of, I'm, no i don't i don't that that's never happened to me like okay. so i don't have a problem with that the problem i think is for self-coached athletes mm-hmm. uh, if they just go and follow what the garmin says i think there are better ways to go about it even just mm-hmm. some free training plans on the internet i think would be potentially better than the than the garmin at least as long as we don't know what it bases things <laughs> things off definitely some paid training plans would be a lot better yeah. and uh yeah there, there's just i think i think that it's for self-coach athletes that 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 kind of thing in particular is a problem but i do think that sometimes the the whoop and similar recovery devices that can be that can be a bit more i guess problematic in a coach athlete relationship as well and uh yeah yeah. not 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 cause friction between the coach and the athlete i haven't I never had that happen but but maybe yeah. maybe the athlete forgets to just listen to their body and how they feel yeah we were going to talk about your coaching philosophy but we have been talking for an hour 45 minutes so <laughs> i think we'll have to leave yeah. that for another episode actually because yeah. i i have another call coming up soon uh but let's no, do no rapid fire questions and uh mm. take just one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports um yeah every time i get a book that's related to endurance sport i i never get a chance to read it because i usually just am collecting papers and that's my go-to source so yeah just reading papers and what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically professionally or personally Riding my bike, of course. Um, and who? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, who's somebody that you look up that. to or that has inspired you? Uh, mostly my academic mentors over the years. So um, Steve Stephen Albrechtson from my undergrad, uh, Stephen Dr. Stephen McGregor from my masters, um, Professor Jerry Dempsey from in between my masters and my PhD. And then my PhD supervisors, which were Chris Abyss, Dr. Paolo Vanespa, and Jeremiah Pfeiffer. Well, all of them are doctors, but yeah, those, all those individuals, you know, the mentoring and the, the, the these are the people that I look up to. And it gave me a lot of, um, you know, help with developing the insight into my training process and my coaching and then, you know, all the critical thinking and that type of thing. So, yeah, I look up to them. I also like look up to kind of the, what I would say the the 
people that are the new, newer kind of cycling performance paradigm type people like the Deo Sanders in the worlds and the Toon Van Erps and um, Peter Leo, um, James uh, Sprague, uh, all these guys that are like doing the science, uh, getting PhDs in it, and then also like having that close coaching relationship with athletes as well. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, um, those are individuals that I look up that the practitioners, I guess there's a number of other people out there that, that would fit into that too. But those are that I want to, I don't want to make them belittle them or anything like that. Like, but, uh, I just haven't had a chance to sit down and talk with them yet. Right. Yeah, so that's a good yeah. list. Uh, and where can listeners find you and, uh, your coaching? Um, I have a website that's boyntoncoaching.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at point at Boynton coaching. I have a Instagram Boynton underscore coaching. I think that's what that is, but yeah, those, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can get a hold of me through the website. There's a contact form there. Um, currently taking on athletes. If you like what I have to say, um, um, and you like the conversations and how I look at things, even though we didn't get a chance to get to, to my, uh, philosophy, but yeah, you can always, uh, hit me up and, uh, we can get deeper into that philosophy conversation one-on-one if someone's interested. So, all right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jason. It was a great chat, uh, and, uh, looking forward to doing it again soon. Oh yeah. Well, we didn't really talk about the research and hopefully come on when, when, then that finally gets published. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Great. Well, take cool. care. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks. I hope you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and links to Jason's website, ResearchGate, and Twitter profiles. And of course, the Cycling Performance Club podcast. Uh, also, we mentioned a number of names of people that have in the past been guests on the Triathlon show, including Mark Burnley, uh, Theon Van Erp, Peter Leo, and those episodes I will also link to in the show notes, as well as uh, a related episode, the only previous episode I've done on uh, the concept of, let's say, critical thinking and, and skepticism, and that's with Dr. Nick Nicholas Tiller. Uh, that was back in episode 239, and uh, he is the author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, so that episode is well worth listening to if you enjoyed today's conversation. Next Monday, I'll interview professional triathlete Frederick Funk. And this is something that uh, I did talk about at the very start of this year when I went through the listener survey and um, basically talked about what this means for how I will produce content uh, this year and possibly uh, further than that. Uh, and anyway, the one thing that I talked about was that I will trial to interview a few pro athletes and see how that goes and how well it is received. Uh, and uh, this is the first one of those episodes. And I'll tell you what, uh, so far I love it uh, because Frederick was really, really, I mean, completely open and transparent with all of his training, all of his numbers and data. And we do go into that in great detail. Uh, there's no holding back or anything. So, so that is a really good, fun episode to listen to if you're into that kind of stuff for sure. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and want some help to achieve your goals, big or small, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or a training plan. Uh, we have options for you, whether you're just getting into triathlon or you're trying to qualify for a world championship or even want to race professionally. And uh, we would love to discuss further around if and how we can help you on your triathlon journey. 
Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, we look forward to connecting with you. Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. And use the code TTS23 at checkout for 15% off your first order. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get a special Senate bundle that includes the swim trainer and a number of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senatewimtrainer.com forward slash ETS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.